G'day everyone, welcome to Lubrication Experts and today I think I've got a topic that's been, actually been requested a couple of times on the YouTube channel um, and it's to talk about polymers in kind of all of their variants um, as it relates to both lubricants and greases. So I had to find someone who is um, really up to the task because it is such a specific subject. So today I have uh, Dr. Jacob Sherger with me from uh, Functional Products. He's the Senior Polymer Scientist. Um, so if you thought that there are some uh, job descriptions in our industry which are pretty specific, this to me gets about as uh, specific to the uh, topic at hand as, as we could find. So I'm very lucky to have uh, Dr. Jacob here. And so uh, Jacob Sherger, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. So um, I think what would be helpful is if we start with some like very basic uh, definitions, not just for the audience, but for me. I don't really have a, a chemistry background, so I'm always kind of fumbling in the dark around here. Um, first of all, can we give just like a generic definition of what we're saying is a, is a polymer? And then maybe we can then drill down a little bit more specifically to the types of polymers that we talk about when it comes to lubricant formulations. Yeah, I think kind of the most basic definition you get with a polymer is any molecule that's made up of just repeating units. So polyethylene is a whole bunch of ethylene hooked together. Uh, polypropylene is a whole bunch of propylene hooked together. And then once you get, get big enough, it becomes a polymer. Uh, I, people will argue about at what point it becomes a polymer. That's depending on who you ask and what the application is. People tell you all sorts of different things. I think the most useful way is when you have enough units hooked together that it gains unique properties different from what it was when it was a small molecule, you've got a polymer. So if you've got say polymethacrylates made out of alcohols i uh, i think everybody's familiar with the consistency of alcohol to liquid it got a certain smell all of that uh you hook enough of it together and it becomes a bouncy squishy rubber they're clearly different you, you know when that's become polymer so the properties have changed and then kind of the gray area in between uh we throw a term at we just call it an oligomer it's almost a polymer um, what, what's kind of um, resulting in that change? Is it um, is it simply that we have modified like the physical shape of the molecule sufficiently that it that it gains extra properties, um, or or do we are we changing the chemistry in any way by by extending it? There are some polymers where you're changing the chemistry, but mostly it's just just the physical thing. It's those molecules are constrained, they can't move around as freely, and they have to move with another molecule then. So degrees of freedom goes down, the way molecules can move through each other goes down. They kind of end up linking together when they're big enough, like you got a bowl of noodles. And you got just one noodle there, it's, you know, flops around or whatever, but you have a whole bunch and it'll, it touches all the other ones and it does something and that gives it kind of that physical form as to it mm. okay and and so what are the maybe like common uh, polymer types that we're talking about when it comes to lubricant formulations 
Uh, there's quite a few actually that end up getting used in lubricants, um, what we call OCPs or olefin copolymers. Uh, so I was just tell you what a copolymer is. If instead of hooking a whole bunch of one thing together, you hook a whole bunch of two things together, you've got a copolymer. Uh, but the most common OCP is uh, ethylene and propylene. They'll, they'll show up in a lot of lubrication formulations. Uh, polybutenes, polyisobutylenes show up. Um, polymethacrylates, I typically see that shorthanded as PMA, styrene copolymers, um, and you know who you ask, some people might call an MPAO polymer, or they might just call it a heavy base stock, but really you're putting those molecules together. You're making what is technically a polymer. Um, and then each of those things, what they do, how they work, their properties are going to be pretty dependent on molecular weight. That's just how big the polymer is. The more you have hooked together, the bigger the molecular weight and the architecture. So things can all be together in a straight line, like a noodle. Things can have chains hanging off the side, more like a comb or a star and all those different architectures change the properties, change how they behave in the oil. Okay. So, um, Maybe if we can start then moving into the, the use of polymers in lubricant formulations, um, it'd be good to get an idea of, um, you know, what kind of properties they're imparting to the final uh, formulation. So some of the common ones that you've measured, uh, you've mentioned then, for example, like the polymath acrylates are obviously a, a family of different polymers that have different use cases um, within the lubricants industry. So could you please just describe how like you said, changing the architecture of something like a polymethacrylate can lead to different use cases? Yeah, absolutely. So polymethacrylate can be used like any linear polymer, uh, just as a viscosity modifier or a viscosity index improver. Uh, and those, uh, the more linear and the longer they are, the better they tend to be as a viscosity index improver. Um, and that's because as you put something into a colder oil, there's less solubility and the polymer kind of compacts down and isn't taking up much space. So it's adding a small amount of viscosity. As you increase the temperature, that drops the viscosity of the oil, but increases the solubility. So that long polymer bands out and takes up more space, increasing the viscosity more, which allows for less viscosity drop, higher VI. Now you change that and make it more branched. So the same weight of polymer can't ever expand to take up more space. It's hooked to itself with that branching. But those side chains might serve a different purpose. Those side chains might allow you to have fewer points where they're susceptible to shear. So you might have a lower shear polymer by increasing the branching. You might uh, make those side chains appear waxy make them appear waxy they actually gather waxed out of an oil and that's how they can be used for pore point depressants they'll gather that wax and prevent it from making crystals and freezing improves low temperature fluidity um if you just keep expanding the molecular weight make it bigger and bigger and bigger eventually you'll get into a regime uh when it's not in uh fluid it's called uh, entanglement regime, but in the fluid, uh, it will be semi-dilute or, or, uh, 
might still be 12 and 10 goals once you pass semi dilute. But usually we stop at semi dilute. Uh, but the chains can directly interact in the fluid again. And then you get things like uh, tachifiers, uh, things like anti mist, because they're holding the oil in with them. Uh, and then some of those side chains or side herbs, you might attach other molecules to, to kind of change the solubility or change the polarity. And if you get that just right, you might get something that, uh, is kind of borderline soluble, which works as an anti-foam agent then. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, that's, that's super helpful because we always hear about, I mean, on the end user side, we always hear about these polymethacrylates, right? And then they say that, you know, they use for pore point depression and they use for viscosity index improvement and we use them to you know uh deal with foam and all that kind of stuff and you think how can how can how's it possible that one molecule is doing all this stuff and not only that but on the end user side we we can't we don't really see them right we don't detect them because there's not a used oil analysis test that uh, picks up that kind of uh additive um really you know you only kind of uh, see their effects uh, as they start to shear down, for example, where you might see the viscosity at 100 drop slowly over time in a hydraulic oil or something like that. So there's not like a really uh, a direct measurement uh, for that kind of additive. So it, it is interesting to see, um, like you were saying, how changing the architecture can also change its 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 function so much. Um, one of the other ones or the group of molecules that you talked about as well, which I think it might be helpful to understand because they're in so many formulations, is um, the polybutenes and uh, what is it, the polyisobutylenes as well. Because uh, I think, again, from the end user, the names are pretty similar, so everyone thinks of them as being the same thing. Um, could you please describe, you know, the use cases for, for both of those molecules um, and how kind of the architecture of those molecules leads to their function? Yeah. Uh, so... Polybutenes are actually a copolymer of different isomers of butene. So they end up with kind of chains sticking out kind of randomly off all the, all the sides. And so they, they work nicely as a low shear thickener. Um, they tend to be restricted to those low shear thickeners just because of the, all the random isomers. It's hard to increase the molecular weight to a point where they'd be high shear and providing very high uh, efficiency viscosity increase. When I talk about efficiency, I'm talking about like uh, increase in viscosity per weight percent treat. Uh, so they're limited in that, but also being being low in that keeps them very low shear, almost like base oils. So you don't need to worry about them shearing out nearly as much. Uh, polyisobutylenes, PIBs, are a single isomer. They're very ordered. Uh, and that allows them to use much higher molecular weights. So you can use them like a PB. You can get the low molecular weights that, that will perform almost the same purpose. One of the differences you'll see there is because they're so ordered, uh, they may, they may order themselves at low temperatures more. So you may run into, uh, more low temperature problems if you overtreat with that, though they don't just inherently cause that. Um, but you can make them very big and they can become things like tachifiers. They can become all sorts of things that you can do with a high molecular weight when you don't need low shear as well for those PIBs. Yeah. Um, and, and so I might be speaking out of turn here, but um, I mean, I've seen polybutenes 
mostly used to like let's say for example boost the viscosity of, of something like uh, uh, something with a, a, a vegetable base oil right where um, a lot of the vegetable oils are only available in low viscosity grades and people are trying to make something that's you know uh, a biodegradable but higher viscosity and so then they just boost the thing with uh, with polybutenes versus a polyisobutylene where um, you know is that is it correct to say that they're part of a lot of dispersant packages? Um, a lot of dispersant packages use uh, polyisobutylene as kind of a base or something to help keep it soluble in the nonpolar oil because the dispersant part has to be very polar. Um, but that's a modified uh, polyisobutylene. That's something that's going to have probably nitrogen groups attached or something that's that's polar that's going to help to pull those contaminants out or keep them bound up. Um, so if you just get a polyisobutylene by itself, it's not going to do that. But if you have a modified one, something with nitrogen or some other dispersant chemistry attached to it, uh, they are a good delivery system mm. for those. Uh, you can do the same thing with uh, PMAs seed of spurs and PMAs okay, as well. Okay, cool. Um, now, one of the variations is always uh, kind of trying to match your additive chemistry to to whatever base oil you're using. Um, so let's say, for example, you know, in the more extreme scenario, when you're picking between, let's say, for example, a base stock uh, that's a PAO versus something that looks like an oil-soluble PAG, how would that change the type of polymer chemistry that you can select? So you want to match your, your base oil type to the polymer type. You want to make sure you have something that is, is soluble. Solubility is the main concern there. Um, and where polymers are concerned when I'm formulating with them, how I like to think about it is that the oil you've chosen has a certain amount of solubility available and different polymers are going to take up different amounts of that solubility. And you need to still have room for your additive packages afterwards and, and everything like that. Everything has to take up that certain amount of solubility. So some polymers might be perfectly soluble and work very well in the oil by itself. When you go to add an additive package, you find that everything gets cloudy, everything goes hazy. That's you've, you've used up too much solubility and you can get some of that back by doping small amounts of something that adds more solubility like an ester or an oblated naphthalene you can get some of that back by instead of using a whole bunch of one type of polymer use two compatible polymers uh, so in typically a mineral oil with all of these non-polar polymers i don't see a lot of solubility issue uh you might need something to compatibilize the package still but usually a very small amount Oh, uh, PAO, they get, they have less solubility to them in my experience for polymers and additive packages. Um, so what we've had a lot of luck with is we have some PMAs that are designed to go well into PAO and then they are slightly polar themselves and they add a little bit of solubility back. So you can use some PMA, some PB or PIB together and have a more soluble, better result than if you had to use one individually. Yeah. Um, 
and it's it's hard to give you a general rule. It's kind of a case by case basis. You look at what additives are being used. You everything has to work together. So it's it's hard to make any general rule for any of that. Um, but choosing base oil is definitely important. Uh, in addition to just being able to be soluble, the solubility changes other properties. So if your polymer is more soluble in oil, that's going to change how it affects how much viscosity is being added, how much VI is being added. Um, if your polymer is very poorly soluble at room temperature, but very well soluble at high temperature, that's going to give you a bigger boost in VI. Mm. Uh, but if you're strongly soluble across the board, you're getting more viscosity per treat. You just need to get that viscosity up. Yeah. Okay. Different things like that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the other question I had was, um, you know, in a world where, let's say, for example, uh, regulatory pressures are increasingly important, let's say, and uh, there's increased interest, I think, in uh, biodegradable uh, type lubricants, first of all, for environmentally sensitive applications, but I think people are wanting to turn to them a lot more just as kind of like a a band-aid solution, right? Uh, to be able to say that they've done everything possible. Um, and then maybe the other side of that coin is also food-safe formulations as well. So and there's obviously a, a range of polymers that can be biodegradable um, or they can be food-safe. Um, what are the types of uh, properties from the polymer world that make them biodegradable? Um really the the chemical linkages in there um your your pmas with the oxygen linkages and double bonds and things like that tend to be more biodegradable because they can react and split apart and change uh though the double bonds you want to be careful because you don't want those reactions to do what's called cross-linking you don't want the polymer chains to react with each other and make your oil into a gel you don't want to suddenly have your liquid lubricant turn into to jello that would be not great. Um, that's a technical term. Not great. <laughs> uh, yeah, those will help the polymers biodegrade, though more frequently what we end up seeing and doing is using polymers that are not themselves biodegradable, uh, but are able to go in in low amounts and facilitate other biodegradable things being able to be used. So rather than needing to use heavy bright stock or something that's not at all biodegradable, you could use polymer that's soluble in, say, canola oil. And it might only end up needing to be 3% polymer to get to the viscosity you need. And then the rest of that percentage is bio-based canola oil that you've been able to add that is now biodegradable, that is now safe, that it wouldn't have been in the formulation before and polymer facilitates the addition of even a non-biodegradable polymer facilitates the addition of biodegradable components by, by upgrading, uh, those or allowing things to work together more efficiently. And then food grade, uh, I think you mentioned a lot of the requirements for that are 
they're largely determined by kind of the reaction conditions and how pure you can get the polymer. Uh, you get your polymer to a sufficient molecular weight, and it's a polymer of a type that is going to break down into non-hazardous components, it can be food grade. But what you don't want is something that's been kind of uh, poorly refined, so to say, uh, that has a lot of very small molecules still in there. You don't want catalysts left over in it. You don't want uh, like a ligomeric pieces that might actually be able to get into something and bioaccumulate or they big enough that they can't penetrate a cell and bioaccumulate. Yeah, right. And that's really kind of Rick to, to bioaccumulation and food grade. Yep. Is just having sufficient molecular weights and uh, everything reacted properly. So there's not a bunch of small junk with the big stuff, which uh, it's called having a narrow PDI, polydispersity index, if you want the technical term. Excellent. We do love technical here. Um, so, okay, that I think that's super helpful for understanding, uh, you know, the different types of um, polymers that we have in lubricant formulations. Maybe a, a generic question to follow up. Um, what are some of the, let's say, common misconceptions or myths uh, that you see about the use of, of uh, polymers? Well, I end up seeing a lot of different misconceptions that comes from different places. And I think what happens is you get a formulator, they've been there a long time, they tried a polymer in their system, didn't necessarily know what they were looking for, just picked any old polymer, wasn't compatible with what we were doing, and they decided, well, this is what polymer is going to do. We're not going to do that anymore. Uh, and really, it's down to choosing the right thing rather than that's what all polymers are going to do, um, especially with older chemistries or people are using like natural latex, so it's tended to kind of burn when heating to mix and, and caused a lot of like clogged filters and, and things like that. Um, but you're not going to see a polymer necessarily just be clogging filters. That's happens when solubility is poor and they start to come out of solution. That's when something's going to get in your filter, just like any other additive component. Um, something else I see a lot is that you can't add a polymer to a high shear application because it's going to shear out. It's going to cause all sorts of problems, but that's, that can be true, but that's an issue with using too high molecular weight of a polymer to use something lower. Polymers will get down to, I've seen polymers with pretty good properties that shear as low as 4% in KRL. It's really more of a base oil level of shear for some things than a polymer, but you, you can find those just to choose your, your polymer properly. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Um, the other obvious application of polymers, uh, in our industry is greases, right? Um, and I'm guessing there's going to be some, some overlap, but in what way, um, are polymers different in greases than they are in lubricants? Yeah, so in lubricants, you're often adding them either as a specific purpose, like the PPD, or you're adding them to, to increase viscosity and VI. And so they just need to go into the oil. In the grease, 
what they're actually doing is they're forming a network with the grease thickener to support each other. It's kind of like the polymer is the rebar concrete. It's not, if you put in just the polymer, it wasn't going to make anything like a grease. If you put in just the grease thickener, it wasn't going to be nearly as effective as if it was supported by that polymer. And so you're really looking for things that can work together and, and support that. Um, and when you do it right, uh, the thing, things that polymers can add to a grease, they'll reduce oil bleed. They can increase the stiffness of the grease for much more efficiently than just adding more thickener. So you can save costs that way. Uh, and then polymers, uh, depending on the thickener and the application can be very good at preventing, uh, like a water spray off water washout sort of effect in grease. All right. I like that analogy of the, uh, the rebar. Um, because I think that's that's one that everyone can kind of understand conceptually. When we're talking about those kinds of polymers that are working with the thickeners, um, is there a particular family of chemistries that is typical of of, of that application? Uh, it really depends on the thickener, and it also depends pretty strongly on the base oil. A lot of people talking about creases will talk about thickener type only and kind of ignore the base oil. It does matter. You're going to get a lot different properties using a naphthenic base oil versus a paraffinic versus a PAO. Um, and it's hard to make specific recommendations outside of specific cases. Um, I will say much more than in liquid lubricants, uh, I see the styrene copolymers used in creases much more often than I see them in the, the liquid lubricants. Uh, styrene in the wrong concentrations uh is pretty quick to to make gels which is not what you want in a liquid lubricant but kind of a, a gel network supporting that that thickener network can be very effective and then those uh like pi pi stacking of the rings on styrene can interact with certain thickeners and really help compatibilize the oil in there prevent oil bleed a lot of that so i do it's not a, it's not a universal solution you don't always want styrene but uh more often than I see it in liquid lubricants, I see styrene increases. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and and I'm glad you brought up the uh, the issue of um, people overlooking the the base oil when they talk about greases, because even the language that we use to describe greases is always about you know the thickener and the NLGI degrade, uh, and and often even on yeah. like the TDS, they won't even mention what kind of base oil is being used, but. Like you said, you know, there is a lot of variability. I mean, there's plenty of naphthenic-based greases, um, you know, versus paraffinic-based greases or synthetic-style PAO ones as well. And, um, yeah, you know, we place such a huge emphasis on that in the lubricants world. But for some reason, when it comes to greases, we kind of just ignore it, even though, um, you know, the base oil is responsible for much of, I won't say all, but much of the, the lubrication that takes place. Um, okay. Now... I always, um, as we sort of end up these these conversations, like to um, take a look into the the future of a particular topic. Um, in 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 your case um, with polymers, it's obviously a very, in some ways, a very narrow, but in some ways also extremely broad topic, because you have so many chemistries that are available to you when when you're talking about the world of polymers. It's basically infinite. Um, is there anything that you're seeing on the horizon? or that functional products is working on. Um, are there any kind of developments in lubricants polymers um, 
or even the types of chemistries that are becoming available on the market? What should we be looking forward to? Uh, a lot of the recent work I've been doing, uh, we've been looking at a lot of powers as heavy base stock replacements uh, for very high-end applications. Things that almost look like base stocks, like your MPAOs or your bright stocks that are in fact polymers, uh, just new ways to use those polymers and then solve problems, especially in uh, shear sensitive applications or, you know, moving forward into EV, all the, all the instant torque and things give a lot more shear. So the smaller, more base stock like polymers have been becoming more and more popular and learning how to use them for different, different things has been, uh, kind of a big push, uh, recently we've been working a lot with, uh, EPOs that are called ethylene propylene oligomers. They are honestly bigger than some of the other polymers we use, but the industry calls them oligomers. So here we are. Um, but they, they shear more like a heavy base stock, but they provide very efficient thickening, uh, and they're very stable at high temperature. Uh, which again, for this upcoming electric vehicle applications and things is, is becoming more important. Uh, but it's not just, it's not just your temperature range has shifted up. It's also, they're, they're pretty good at low temperature as well. So they've got that kind of expanded range in general, uh, makes them very nice to use. So it's kind of a combination of thickening efficiency and that widened range and the low shear they're getting into a lot of formulations and let's see, try to think of some, yeah. some examples of, of things we've done recently. They're pretty versatile. So we've used them in hydraulic fluids, like ISO 32, ISO 46 hydraulic fluids in some gear oil up to, uh, like SAE 140 grades, which is getting a little heavier. And then way at the other end of the spectrum, uh, we've been able to use that chemistry in uh, sugar mill oil, which needs to be ISO 20,000 or higher. Uh, just so it's, it's kind of run that gamut. Oh, it's got, it's got a wide range of use cases where it, where it does provide a real benefit uh, for the cost. Yeah, um, I think maybe um, what's helpful as, as well um, for for some you know listeners to this podcast who might have an end user background. Um, so one of the big changes that's going on in the industry at the moment, and one of the reasons that Jacob was talking specifically about, um, let's say, heavier base stock replacements, um, is that. Uh, okay, some background here. In, in order to get a reasonably high viscosity let's say industrial gear oil, something like a you know, 320 or 460, most of the time we're looking at, uh, for a mineral-based oil, we're looking at having to use something like a Group 1 Brightstock. Um, and Brightstock availability has been declining all over the world. Uh, and there isn't really kind of like a Group 2, Group 3 replacement um, uh, for that kind of heavier grade. So if you are looking at kind of, I guess formulating a mineral oil that is not group one based, uh, but you still want 
an ISO 460, then you're looking at sort of, you know, a group two or a group three boosted with some kind of uh, polymer a lot of the time to to uh, to raise the viscosity up. Um, so that's kind of one of the challenges that uh, the, the industry is facing. And there are actually some base stock developments on the way where uh, there is kind of like the equivalent of a, a group stock, uh, a group two kind of heavy neutral, um, which will enable some of those uh, heavier industrial formulations. Um, okay, well, hey, Jacob, I think that's been uh, really enlightening. Uh, it's been nice to sort of get into the technical weeds about uh, a, a range of the, the different polymers that are available to us. Because like I said, on the end user side, for the most part, polymers are completely invisible to us. Um, we we really only see their bulk effects in the formulation. But, you know, from a used oil analysis standpoint, they're kind of invisible to us. So getting a bit of a window into all of the different uh, properties that they impart to both lubricants and greases has been extremely helpful. So, uh, uh, Jacob, so thanks so much for coming on. And uh, we'll have to get you on for some, uh, some more specialized uh, polymer work in future. Thank you.